0: We will be starting in Genesis 6, but then we'll be moving to Genesis 8 and Genesis 9. So, Genesis 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Please turn to Genesis 8, beginning verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Please turn to Genesis 9, 8 through 15. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. This is the word
1: of the Lord. I think this is the most excited I've been about going to two services. The music is amazing, and I'm, I'm kind of pumped about doing it all over again. Um, that's right, yeah, <laughs> give it up for that. Uh, a quick reminder before we get going, this Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., we're going to have our Lenten service, and that's going to start a new section of our Through the Bible journey. It's going to pick up with the patriarchs and Abraham, or actually, yeah, with Abraham, with Job. And so today, I'm going to end the section of the Genesis 1 through 11 creation story and bring the beginnings to a close. But to start us off, I want us to think about this question. What would it, what would it take to fix the world? What would it take to fix the world? Don't worry, like a good millennial, I googled it. And uh, the answer is money. Money. The answer is money, so have a good rest of your day, that's, that's everything. Uh, one site suggested about 350 trillion dollars would take care of things where we could cure most diseases, get clean water everywhere, get everyone access to education, we could end climate change, and don't get me wrong, these, this would be amazing if we could come up with that money and do these things, that's, those are good things. But I think we might suspect that the problem runs a little bit deeper. Because there's parts of the world, like Oak Park, where there's plenty of money and there's plenty of problems. And there's parts of the world that have less possessions and have a lot more joy. So perhaps we would have a more sophisticated answer. As Christians, we would say, you know, fix the, fix the people, and you fix the world. But then what exactly would we fix? Their political party, their religious affiliation. We see evil flowing out of all kinds and groups of people, and no one seems immune. And so we know that the problem runs much deeper than, deeper than these surface issues, all the way to our core. I love how Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously put it. He said, The line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained, and even in the best of all hearts, there remains an uprooted small corner of evil. He's right, and it's important we get the answer right, because our answer to the world's brokenness flows out of our explanation of how it became broken. And so if we get the reason wrong, we're going to get the answers wrong. We're going to focus on the wrong things. So deeper than the inequity and injustice and religious tension and international conflicts, underneath all of that, there lies a broken humanity. And we need an answer a little bit deeper than John Lennon's Imagine, I think. And this is exactly what Genesis 3 through 11 is about. It's about the origin of evil, it's about its effects on the world, and it's about God's final answer to evil. And the main point of these chapters is, is theological. The, the, the point of this deep past part of Scripture, the primeval history of who we are, is so that we can know who we are theologically. So I want us to begin this morning walking through the story so far, picking up where Gerald left off last week in the garden, taking us all the way to Abram. And then in doing so, I want us to focus in on the flood story and seeing how, particularly in the flood, these three signs or types or symbols of the flood, the rainbow, and the ark become, they carry over to the New Testament and they tell us about how does God view the evil in the world, and how is he going to fix it? So let's, let's run through the story. It's actually 2,000 years, covered in eight chapters, starting in Genesis 3. So we, picked up, we can pick up where we left off last week. Adam and Eve have fallen into sin and destruction and lost their thrones as the priests and rulers of the earth. But we see that God meets them in their shame, and like a caring father, he gives them garments, And he sends them out of the garden so that they can't eat from the tree of life and stay alive forever in their fallen condition. But the evil that begins in the garden begins to consume everything around it, so much so that the main characters of these chapters are evil and violence, almost personified. This is a story about them. The next characters we encounter are Cain and Abel. They both come with sacrifices to God, but Cain's is rejected. We don't really know why, maybe because of his lack of faith. But Cain is enraged against his brother, and he kills him. And so Cain is cursed by God to be a wanderer on the earth. He's under a sort of double curse of the fall and then an extra curse for his murder. And yet God protects him and puts a mark on him, and God says that anyone who kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And then a few generations later, we meet a character named Lamech. And we just see in him how far the violence and pride of Cain has grown. Lamech boasts, he said, if if Yahweh avenges sevenfold, then Lamech avenges 77-fold. Saying, if you think Yahweh's scary, you should see me. Uh, And things are looking pretty dark and pretty grim. But there's a line of hope. We see that Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And in the line of Seth, we see people who still fear God, who still call upon the name of the Lord. We even encounter a mysterious character named Enoch who walks with God and is taken up. But evil and its dominion grows and the violence of Cain becomes the norm. Later on, we, we encounter in the genealogies a second Lamech under the line of Seth. And he has a son named Noah, and Noah means rest. And here's what he says. He says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. So perhaps he was hoping that his son would be the answered coming seed of Eve to fix the problem, the serpent crusher. We don't know. And Noah would bring a a temporary relief and reprieve from the violence, but he wouldn't bring a lasting one. And I want to pause here and just think about why is violence such a big part of the story right after sin enters the human race? And I think there's a connection between the corruption and the brokenness that humanity experienced in the garden in the fall and violence. And I think it has to do with the fact that we are created as worshipers. And what the fall did, it cut us off from the proper worship of God and kind of like lost children, we look for the next hope and we grab onto things and we form idols out of them. So we were made to be worshipers of God and we're still worshipers even when we're disconnected from God. We just start worshiping the wrong things. So we bow down before pride and greed and self and the opinion of others instead of our creator. And then violence flows out of that. Whenever these new idols of our heart are threatened, we get violent. Not many people are violent just for the sake of violence, although you do see that sometimes. We're often violent when something we love is threatened. And so for Cain, his violence sprung from his wounded pride, his jealousy of his brother. His sacrifice was rejected, the idol of pride was threatened, and Cain responded with violence towards Abel. And like this, violence is often guarding things that are destroying us. We can imagine the danger of getting in between an addict and their addiction, hide the uh, the liquor from an alcoholic at your own peril. We can invoke that violence. And one way to know our own idols is to look at the things that enrages us, makes you mad, really mad. So someone cuts me off in traffic, and the fact that someone would be unjust towards me, of all people. May it never be. I am, I am mad, right? I am enraged because the injustice, my own pride felt assaulted and I'm angry. And I think this is also why we, we can put up with a lot of sins, except we hate when we see our own sins in other people. It enrages us. It threatens our pride and our identity when we see it mirrored back at us. And this is why you fight with a child who is most like you, right? That Whichever child reminds you most of yourself is the one that you will clash with the most. And I can see that happening in my own life. So I think we can all relate to this violence. And the story con- continues, and we read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh. Had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. And so God's diagnosis of the earth in Genesis chapter 6 is corrupt and violent. And we see God mourning for the destruction of his good creation. And then his heart moves towards bringing an end to the violence and an end to the injustice. So God. Brings justice and ushers in a sort of decreation of everything he has made. At the end of the flood, as the waters come and they cover everything, we find ourselves back in Genesis one, where the waters cover the earth and then they descend and the land appears. The animals go forth. God gives Noah this new Adam the same commission, where he says in chapter nine, verse one, and God bless Noah and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful." and multiply and fill the earth. So here's a new Adam. Here's a new chance for the human race. And yet Noah will will end with the same failure as Adam. He soon gets drunk, and he's discovered by his children, unclothed. And so the story of Noah ends with Noah naked and ashamed, having succumbed to the fruit, just like Adam and Eve. It's no different. Water got in the boat, as it were, and the brokenness of Adam still remains. But at this point in the story, God makes it clear that he will not continually bring judgment against the fallen and wicked humanity. So like a warrior ceasing from battle, he hangs his bow up in the heavens, and he makes a covenant or a promise to Noah that even though man's heart hasn't changed, God will delay judgment and work redemption. So look with me at Genesis 8, 21. The Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. And this is the first time in the Bible we read about a covenant, a covenant, a promise that God's gonna work despite our sin and despite our evil to bring about a redemption. And God will work through these these covenants throughout the rest of the story of Scripture. And just to get us all the way to Abraham, I'm gonna give you the part after the flood real quick. The earth it repopulates and becomes full of humanity again, and then we're back to the same scenario. Pride begins to grow. Uh, the people build a tower at Babel as a shrine to the pride and the glory of man instead of the glory of God. And so in mercy, God keeps his promise not to destroy. And this time he scatters the people. He confuses their tongues. Humanity can't as easily unite in evil and in self-exaltation. And from the scattered tribes of the sons of Noah, God calls one family from the line of Shem, Abram, son of Terah, who are idol worshippers in Ur of the Chaldees. And from this one obscure family, God's going to work to bring about the one who will crush the serpent and reclaim the throne. And so the stage is set for Abram, and from Abram, the nation of Israel, and from the nation of Israel to Jesus, the long-awaited deliverer. And that's where the story will continue next week. But For the rest of our time this morning, I want us to go back and I want us to look at what the flood means for us today. The New Testament reveals that Noah's salvation through the waters of the flood are meant to point towards a greater and more ultimate salvation from a greater and more ultimate judgment to come. So I want us to look at the three emblems, the three signs, or the three types, or the three uh, images of the flood story. So the water the rainbow and the ark. And then I want us to think about how these signs are still speaking to us here today and here this morning. So we have three types. We have the water, the rainbow, and the ark, and we're going to look at those and then we're going to be done. So first we have the water, the flood representing the wrath and the judgment of God. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24:37. For as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus says the flood is kind of a symbol or a precursor to the second coming Jesus' second coming, and just like it was kind of an ordinary life—marrying, eating, giving in marriage—and then the judgment came. So too, we wait in an uncertain reality of it; it could come at any moment where Jesus brings the end. But the, the underlying question is: How do we understand the flood and the wrath of God as it relates to us? What is the wrath of God? Is it is it God having a temper tantrum? Um, and I was thinking about this, and I was reminded of a, a pretty powerful story I saw a couple of years ago. You might have seen it as well. Where the father of uh, some of the victims of, of Larry Nasser, who was a doctor, um, he was in court, and the doctor was in the room, and the daughters who had been victimized were in the room. And the father looks, and he attacks the perpetrator. He moves forward in justice and anger and he, he's going to exact vengeance on the one who wronged his family. And he's tackled, rightly so. And so you have this tension, especially as a dad. I can, I can really, as a father, I understand, right? I understand the anger. I understand the judgment. But then as a citizen, I also understand that us exacting our own vengeance is not uh, the best way to govern a society, And so we feel this need, we feel a need for vengeance and justice, but we also understand that we're not really the ones that should bring it, right? We're not really capable of doing it right. And this longing for justice has actually spawned an entire genre of movies and films. You might call it the enraged father vengeance film. So movies like Taken, 1, 2, and 3, and Man on Fire, and The Patriot, and Gladiator, and dozens of John Wayne movies, and probably a lot more that I haven't seen. So kind of dude movies. And the story, the trope goes along that there's a powerful father figure, and the bad guys kind of went one step too far. And off he goes, right, that he's going to exact vengeance, And there's something about that that we are glad to see, but then almost in every one of these movies, it it goes a little bit too far. It becomes bloodthirsty, bloodthirsty and cruel and vindictive. And we see, again, the same point that we need and we want justice, but we know that we aren't capable of doing it right. And that's why we naturally, I think, don't view vengeance and justice as going together, because we we feel like justice always comes up a little bit short, and vengeance always seems to go a little bit too far. So how can we, how could we ever do it right? And the point is, is God is the only one who can do it right. He's the only one who can bring together vengeance and justice. And, and in the flood story, we see it. He looks down at the violence, and he says, it's going to stop right now. And he ends it. And so we serve a God who says, vengeance is mine, And we know that when he comes, he's going to bring back justice. And he's going to do it in the right way. Another piece we see in the flood is that your sin is destroying you. And the way it destroys you looks like a deconstruction or a decreation. That God's judgment decreates what he had created. And that's what sin is trying to do to us. It's trying to pull us back towards our animal and our dehumanized selves and that God is going to act and stop that before it happens. So the first sign for us is the floodwaters and the wrath of God. The second sign is the rainbow, or the bow, the rainbow and the patience of God. We we see that God in the story says he will not continually bring judgment against a broken humanity. He's going to be patient with us, and he's going to work salvation first. So Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3. If you want to flip there, I'm going to read verses 5 through 10, if you have a Bible. And Peter's going to draw on the flood story, and he's going to make a point about the patience of God. Peter writes, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word... The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So one answer we see here to the the question of the problem of evil that we see, one part of the answer to that question is the patience of God. The patience of God. And this is what the rainbow in the flood story symbolizes. It's not saying God will never judge because he will. He's just saying, it just is telling us that God is patient. He's patient. We're under the covenant, right? There's a time that he has given us to repent. But one day, God will pick the bow back up, as it were. He's going to come and he's going to make things right. He's going to close every brothel. He's going to free every slave. He's going to end all the exploitation of the poor and the children. He's going to he's going to make it all stop. And we're glad about those days. We, we can say with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And I, I, I'd never realized this before, but in studying for this passage, I came across an amazing picture of this in Revelation chapter 10. And you don't have to turn there. I'll just kind of tell you the story. In Revelation 10, we see a symbolic picture of Jesus, and he comes down and he sets one foot on the, in the sea, and he sets the other foot on the earth, and the rainbow has come down with him. The bow is back. Um, and Jesus speaks with the voice of a lion. He says, at last, the last trumpet is blowing, and it's over. I've come to set things right. And a few verses later, in chapter 11, verse 15, the final trumpet blows, and the elders around the throne fall on their faces, and they say, we give thanks to you Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, for those who who fear your name, for great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Destroying the destroyers of the earth. That is what God is intending to do. That Jesus is going to come down, he's going to bring the bow, he's going to make things right and he's going to destroy the destroyers. And that should feel like good news and it should feel like bad news for us today, I think, because remember at the beginning that the line between good and evil, it's not somewhere out there in some other country or some other party or some other group that it runs right through the middle of all of us. In our hearts. For God to make everything right, he has to end evil, even the evil inside of me. And so this leads us to the final type or the final picture that the New Testament makes from the flood story. And that's the ark and the grace of God. The ark and the grace of God. And this is the most important sign for us this morning, because there's a lot of destroyers that are here today in this room, including me. But God has made a way. Jesus offers to forgive us. Christ has made a way for his people to pass through that coming judgment. And Peter picks up on this. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 20, he says, When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So Peter says one reason for the patience of God is to give, people, to give Noah, to, he gave Noah time to get on the ark. And, and that's part of the imagery we find ourselves in. Noah, Peter goes on to write that the part of the imagery of baptism is found in Noah's ark. That just like Noah found refuge in the ark and passed through the waters of judgment, so we find refuge in Christ, inside Christ, covered by Christ, and we pass through the waters of death and judgment, and we come through the other side. That's the symbolism of baptism, that we find refuge in our ark, who is Christ. But God doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just fix those problems. He offers us a way this morning to extinguish the evil in our hearts, to begin that promised healing now. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Paul, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So when we come to Christ in faith, he forgives our guilt, and he begins restoring our heart. And so this is where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves living under the rainbow, literally and metaphorically, knowing there's a flood coming, and where God is going to make everything right, and his people are going to be restored. And the question for me and for you today is how are you going to relate to this story? The writer of Hebrews says that Noah condemned the world and all of its scoffing and mockery, and by faith he put himself inside the ark of God's salvation. And so for some of you, if you've never accepted Christ, I would urge you to turn your hearts towards him this morning And by faith, put yourself in him and get the forgiveness and the healing that your heart so desperately needs. And for those of us who are Christians, I encourage you to invite the Spirit into your heart this morning to begin the healing process and to continue the healing process of the broken and deformed parts of our soul. We'll have people available to pray at the end of the service. If you want someone to pray for you, I pray that you let this word sink in. And um, let me close this all in prayer.